0: What did I tell you? Supposing he goes back home and make a fucking beef? I gotta know exactly what you said. Tell me what you said. Me? I said, nothing. I said I said no, 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 everything he said. I just kept saying no. I told you this was fucking dangerous. Remember I said, Ginger, this is a dangerous situation. Be very careful. You fucking yes me to that. It's so fucking dangerous. Then why don't you kill him? Oh,
1: I kill him? Well, shut the fuck up. What do you know what you're talking about? Oh, well, I'm not then have anything. him
0: killed and get it over with. Hey, don't with. be such a fucking smart ass, will you? I, mean, I know the fucking guy 35 years. I'm gonna fucking whack him for you. Have you ever had the feeling that the world's going gone and left you behind? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode Have of No Happy Endings. My guest host, Steven Benedict, and I are going to be looking at two films that came out in 1995, one directed by Mike Figgis, the other Martin Scorsese, which are Leaving Las Vegas and Casino. And I just thought it would be fun to have an opportunity to look at two of the best films that I'm aware of that get to, how do I put it, kind of the rewards and the betrayals of the American dream. (laughs) And Vegas, as Hunter S. Thompson, I think, was very shrewd in diagnosing, was kind of where to conduct the autopsy of the death of the American dream. You know it wasn't new york it wasn't los angeles it was las vegas and both of these films especially leaving las vegas one of my favorite books of all time by john o'brien he took his own life after he wrote it so the novel serves as a kind of suicide note and then casino is just so dark but fascinating and simultaneously incredibly glamorous so Yeah, I hope you really enjoy Leaving Las Vegas and Casino this week on No Happy Endings. Steven, today we are going to go back 26 years to 1995 to look at Las Vegas through the lens of two films that were made that year, very celebrated films. Leaving Las Vegas, the Mike Figgis suicidal rabbit hole of a film um and then martin scorsese's casino very different tenor um but what did you make of revisiting these films i mean how do they hold up for you 26 years later well
1: it's really curious for me because i actually saw those movies as god intended <clears throat> within about a week of each other <clears throat> but i saw them not in las vegas i saw them in new york
0: uh-huh.
1: and i saw last leaving las vegas first and um, it's a movie that I hadn't been aware that it was was coming along. Um, I hadn't, you know, I vaguely knew of the trajectory of Mike Figgis's career. He'd starting in England, and he made a, an interesting noir movie called Stormy Monday. And on the strength of that, got to the States and made a movie with Richard Gere called Internal Affairs, Andy Garcia. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, his, his was a career that I wasn't following. Um, but obviously Scorsese's was. And um, so I was looking forward to Casino, but then leaving Las Vegas appears. So I went to see that first, and I thought it was a really, really strong picture when I saw it. I think the time in between there's a little, there's a few flaws that are, are emerging now, but in comparison to um, Casino, my abiding memory, strange enough, of seeing Casino was not actually the movie at all. I went to see it as a midnight show mm. in what was in now sadly gone the Ziegfeld Theater. In Midtown.
0: Yeah, my favorite theater in the city.
1: My favorite theater in the entire planet. Mm. It was just a tragedy that happened. I mean, obviously, it's a prime piece of real estate. So they're going to close it down. It's not earning earn the big bucks. But I came out at about three o'clock in the morning, 3 a.m. after a midnight screening to a Manhattan beset by this phenomenal blizzard. It was just absolutely fantastic. And I remember walking up, I don't know which avenue it would have been, but it was like just a, a snow tunnel. So I was fighting the elements walking up the up, up the street and that's my abiding memory. Of the first time I saw a casino is excuse upon, it's a blur. So looking at it now, uh, I think the strengths of both films have improved. They've become stronger and the flaws and weaknesses are, you can really see cracks, uh, in both. And that doesn't mean to say they're, they're weak pictures. Uh, the strengths of their, of the films far surpass most other movies. You know, they're really, really, and it's interesting to because one is a very small, a low, small, low budget, independent, almost character study? I yeah. mean, that's leaving Las Vegas is. And Casino is this operatic, Baroque, mannerist examination of materialism and all excesses. Uh, the only difference being one character, the characters in Casino are not suicidal. They're self-destructive, but they're not suicidal. And that's the way that Ben is in in leaving las vegas how did they settle for you does they do they
0: work equally well i'm somebody for better or worse when a when a film hits me uh i need to know everything about it and so with leaving las vegas i think i have always had a a nursed a lot of antipathy for Nicolas cage i just really dislike him on screen uh maybe honeymoon in vegas I found him charming in that with Sarah Jessica Parker, who I also loathe on screen, but I liked her in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just thought, okay, what is this? A guy, his life is falling apart. He's got these demons. And instead of any effort to fight them, he just gives in, moves to Vegas, sells everything off, and he's going to drink himself to death in a month. Uh, what, like, is this some unearthed Dostoevsky novel of... I'm going to St. Petersburg <laughs> to gamble <laughs> my life away, and they've, you know, transplanted it. Um, and then that opening scene of uh, the kind of shopping spree, sweeping, Sorry, yes. Yes. sweeping with a supermarket, loading up on booze as Cage is dancing and whistling, kind of his own suicidal melody. Yeah. Uh, and I just went, okay, you've you've got me. I'm, I'm really hooked in this, and I don't know if it's the filmmaker or Nicolas Cage or the underlying novel, but the more I learned about this, I went out and bought the book right after by John O'Brien, who, for people who don't know, this was his first novel, and he committed suicide by shotgun, I believe, two weeks after um, yeah. selling the script, and... Throughout this movie, you see Nicolas Cage, well, the first half of the movie, wearing a Rolex watch, a 1993 Daytona that he pawns once he gets to Las Vegas. And he pawns it for $500 and makes a big deal about that. $500. $500 for a 93 Rolex Daytona. I'll do it. Because a used Daytona watch at that time would be worth $20,000. Oh. And the watch that he's pawning was owned by John O'Brien, who wrote the script. That's oh. the actual watch.
1: Okay.
0: So there was something about this film for me. I, why I thought of it for boxing is I thought about this a lot when I look at certain boxers that just hang in there too long. And people say, what does he have to hang in there for? What's he fighting for? And I'm always sort of waving my hand saying to, to not have to live the rest of his life. Right. He doesn't know where to go with the rest of his life. This is all he knows. This is all he's ever known. This is all he's received validation for. And a lot of these people enter boxing from pain. Yeah. And, and their way out of it is to be sort of bludgeoned out of it, to be knocked numb from yeah. it. it's it's a form the abuse is a form of self-medicating yeah. for them so this this film and the pathos of the of the character i think it's entirely a character study yeah. um, you know you know he's never going to escape this trap that he's in you don't know where the trap came from which is interesting you know yeah. we don't we don't know what he's done to lose his job or to lose his wife lose his family we just know he he's out you know he he he's he's at that supermarket on on the way to toward that last destination uh, and, and uh, yeah so uh leaving las vegas was very very powerful for me and then even more so i i, I think the film is phenomenal and it i agree with you it, it has its Issue, I have my issues with the, the Prostitute with the Heart of Gold, just how cliche that is. Yeah. Even though it's interesting casting, given Elizabeth Shue in my childhood was Adventures with Babysitting or yeah. opposite Tom Cruise in Cocktail. One of my favorite films to revisit with how awful it is, it's majestically fun. <laughs> um, it's an interesting turn for her. I think Figgis handles the material in very intriguing ways there are some really poignant moments he does the soundtrack which is a sort of crucial crucial it it really works um sting who some of his stuff i love some of it i just can't stand him um there's something yeah I i like him here yeah and then and then just on the flip side with casino um I was under the impression with Goodfellas and then Casino and then later on Wolf of Wall Street that he is trying to celebrate all of these people. He is trying to venerate completely immoral scumbags, in my view. And that was just me. I was 16 when I saw Casino and watching it a little later on in revisiting it and revisiting Goodfellas and very quickly after a a, a second watch of Wolf of Wall Street, it's no, this is holding up a mirror at us, yeah. at, at different stratas of capitalism, yeah. showing we want this life at every level. And boy, there is nothing that he's trying to redeem in Casino of the characters who are there or us who rush like that last image of the mob of yeah. old fat people marching in yeah. to get to those tables and to get to those slot machines and um you you, you've remarked before
1: how scorsese is able to visualize one there's one i mean there's many many great images indelible images in his movies but he seems to be able to land on one that is absolutely key to unlocking what the movie is about and we've discussed about raging bull um and taxi driver you know the first view of the taxi coming through that steam emerging from hell and you're absolutely right. He waits off three hours to give us the shot of these people walking in slow motion through the ter- almost the turnstiles to the new to the new temple, and that temp-
0: yeah. Yeah,
1: and- you you hear the line, you know, uh, it's all about they dropping their their kids' um, college fund, and if you want to or if you want to check into the hotel, you've got to give your social security number, and it's all become corporatized. Yeah that's that's the
0: great thing and and so we can look at it in layers and and i would i would say he's also reminding you that all of these things in america that criminals have the ideas to come up with Mm -hmm. the brilliant ideas about here's a way to make money the government just takes them over after demonizing it at first criminalizing it we just institutionalize it yeah. And then we turn it in with marketing to say, this is a fun family destination where everybody's going to have a great time. Yeah. And what you hear with the, the, I mean, the fabulously innovative technique with narrative, like with the voiceover of three different characters. Yeah. And I want to talk to you later on about why Sharon Stone wasn't one of those narrators. She should have been, It would have been very interesting. Yes. Um, but right at the outset lest you think that this is endorsing or romanticizing Vegas or the mob running Vegas, mm. he is telling us that all we're here to do is take your money. While you're up on the tables, we go under the casino. It's all being skimmed. It's all corrupt. It's all people that just look at you as a complete sucker for any participation and involvement in this. Um, you know, and it's, it's funny to me that, like... Uh, You have with Wall Street, with Michael Douglas, um, or Scarface. These are movies that are meant to be this cautionary tale that become a billboard of recruitment for people going, I can't wait to go participate in that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the, the really, really strange thing when we're watching the movie the first time. And a lot of critics fell into that, tra- that trap when they looked at Casino and they looked at Goodfellas. And they're sort of saying, well, this film glorifies gangsterhood and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and I think it's because Scorsese avoids the cliche presentation depiction of criminality. Um, growing up where he did grow up in New York, it was very real on the street. Um, so he avoids the, the, the tragic narrative arc of the boy who's born into poverty and he has no choice other than to become a criminal as a way out. And that is myth has exploded in the very, very famous opening line from Goodfellas.
0: As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster.
1: As far back as I can remember, I always wanted, I always wanted to be a gangster. It's desire right? This is the character desire. And so then we think, okay, it's going to be, it's a memoir, right? Um, but it's not, the movie then turns out to be, he's giving testimony. The entire movie is he's giving, giving evidence in the court. And, you know, interesting. You're saying about Sharon Stone isn't afforded the position of an, of a, an author within that, that narrative in Goodfellas, Lorraine Bracco is given, she's given narration. And yeah. I think it's very, very important that Scorsese finds a space for women in the universe, which is almost predominantly male. And that's what I found very interesting. The second time, sorry, revisiting Leaving Las Vegas, is that um, Sarah's character, played by Elizabeth Shue, is given a lot of voice, and she's given a voice. To, she's given a voice through scenes where we don't see who's listening to her. We know she's probably in therapy yeah um we assume assume it's the cancer. it could be her sponsor you know yeah. um but it's really us right and i think those sequences were really really interesting because it reminded me of the jane fonda picture from 1971 clute mm-hmm. where she herself was um, she was an escort for part time because she was she was an aspiring actress model and she's in therapy and she's explaining uh, her, her situation, not so much through therapy, but also to the audience, because this is 1971 and the vast majority of audiences, just like John Clute's character played by Donald Sutherland, would have been the equivalent of the Boy Scouts, especially in Hollywood, you know, this was for only five years after the, the, um, the code of classification was changed in Hollywood. So depiction of sex, you know, um, swear words, very, very adult language was suddenly permissible. And so Jane Fonda charges out and she went, she did extensive research because she, she spoke to sex workers and she incorporated a lot of what they were saying into the apartment where she was living and creating a really, really great backstory for Brie Daniels. And it's when you hear Elizabeth shoe, you can almost hear the research that she's been doing. Yeah. I, with respect to, to uh, John O'Brien's novel, which I haven't read, as you said, you have. I, and to Mike Figgis' adaptation, my sense is that the scenes with Elizabeth Shue were all her research and her improv. And they, they wrote it down then and they said, OK, this is what we're going to do.
0: Yeah, you get more background of Sarah in, yeah. in the book, you know, a little bit of okay. there are chapters from her perspective. Okay, right. Um, I mean, maybe third person, but you're following her trajectory and you're in her head about what some of her experiences have been, so that there's more of a balance between her and Ben mm-hmm. and how they come together and where they overlap. Whereas in the film, uh, you know, at the end, she's saying, you know, I liked his drama, and. You know, she she mentions that she loves him kind of midway through yes. the film or midway through them meeting each other. I think when they go to a casino and are, are having a kind of, um, I guess, the closest thing they have to a joyful event. I mean, it's noteworthy in the film. It took me only this time rewatching it, maybe in the fourth or fifth time I've seen the film, that he's never eating anything. Oh. He's only yeah. drinking. and. Yeah. And when he's presented with food, he he can't eat. And that's right. She wants to cook for him. And she she, can't can't eat. The attempt at domesticity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and also the attempt to rehabilitate. Do you want to go climb back toward life? And, you know, he he, he,
1: says you can never ask me to stop drinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a as a study, because I mean, part of what has always fascinated me about covering boxing with profiles is the unbelievably addictive nature of those involved at the highest levels. Often the people at the top are the most addictive. Okay. We say oh, they show the most discipline. Maybe or maybe they can't do anything else. Right. Maybe they're unable to lead a balanced life. Maybe they're unable to participate in family. Maybe they're unable, you know, maybe that's why they blow all their money, because it's an excuse to come right back, you know, to, <laughs> to this extremity. Yeah. And I was thinking with, with leaving Las Vegas, um, I mean, I've had, a, uh, I've had some alcoholism in my family, but I was definitely thinking about an uncle I had, Uh, back in Budapest who drank himself to death in his early fifties. I only met him once for a week when I was 18, just before I I had my 19th birthday with him. And it was the first time I got drunk and he would get up at seven in the morning, six, seven in the morning, and just nonstop having four or five servings of uh, beer and shots of brandy and that kind of thing. And he'd go all the way until 2 a.m. And that was the worst hangover I've ever had in my life. I remember going back to the the house where my mother was raised in Budapest and just vo- in the middle of the night vomiting on everything. Just like everywhere except the bathroom that I was trying to get to. And, and he never showed any impact from alcohol. And once he was hospitalized, I get, he died two years ago or something. Um, he was... Even in the hospital, getting family members to smuggle alcohol in Uh, and they took off one of his his feet. Like like, like, I I think like the legs started coming off, but literally like had to be amputated, still drinking. And then the organs start failing, still going. And he was somebody a bit like Ben where. I don't know when he made that decision that alcohol was going to be his means of suicide, but it was this incredibly, instead of a month to kill yourself, it was going to be 25 years of ki- to, to kill himself. But he was very clear on where that was going. There was yeah. no, nothing could prevent him from that destination. And I thought that that this rendered alcoholism in a very unromantic way. And yeah. similarly what i like about both casino and leaving las vegas and their own uh, explorations of what what vegas represents is we get this sort of glamorized version of what las vegas is or what hollywood is but this is th- these are kind of case studies in the real people who are drawn to that destination and yeah. it's it's all of the literally a city built on the suffering and loss of those who go there and lives are ruined. It's it's like the majority of the capital that's there to be invested to build all of these casinos and everything is not the 90% of people who can comfortably go there and have a vacation and responsibly gamble. It's for the 10% of people who cannot control drinking or drugs or gambling or any of their vices and throw their lives away in order for Vegas to get rich off of them. And, and I felt like these two, these both both Ace and, in, in his way, Ben, played by Nicolas Cage, are kind of examples of people who, you know, get lost, get lost in, um, in themselves and what they don't want to deal with. And Ace, in his own way, you'd think, here's this, the best gambler in America. Yeah. But the ultimate gamble he makes that destroys himself is on somebody completely irredeemable with Sharon Stone in a, uh, both her and Elizabeth Shue are nominated for Academy Awards for their performances as prostitutes because it seems yeah. like it's about all Hollywood wants to nominate women for.
1: That's, <laughs> you know, that's Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's many, many different ways we can, we can assess both films. And one of them, as I was saying, was you know, Elizabeth Shue's performance of Sarah and the improv goes back to, is reminiscent of Clute and that's born out of the, the end of the uh, the classification. But if you go back into the 1930s, and 1940s and 50s, you didn't have women being represented that way. You didn't have sex or prostitution on screen. It was alluded to ever so slightly um, in, in noir pictures or gangster pictures because she would she'd be a singer in a club. That yeah. was the code. And then in a Western, she was as part of the chorus line, right? She worked mm-hmm. and that was, that was that, but in, as you're saying that in, you know, in the more modern era, absolutely. The representation of women, uh, we think is more free, but it's actually in a way it's coercive and it's very, very limiting. Um, because with the relaxation of censorship um, nudity is involved, and then the girl, a woman is expected to get, if she's, she's got a big chest, take the boobies out, yeah. you know, cause the boys are going to line up to see that. And then there's a fetishization of that. I mean, you know, Raquel Welch famously refused to do any topless scenes because she said, well, you know, she knew that that was part of the allure of So long as she didn't reveal her, her career could be sustained. And you know, she's a, she's a very, very funny comedian. She was very, very good at light comedy, but nobody ever, well, the critics never really responded to that because she was the sex symbol. And as you're saying, it, it sort of it, it sort of brackets much more severely the way women will be presented in the way that it doesn't bracket men, because as we said, Elizabeth Shue was adventures in babysitting. Right. right And so much so now that when she does leaving Las Vegas, it's it's sort of um cauterized part of her career trajectory because she can no longer go back to playing. A certain type of character, because she will. This is her most indelible, most iconic performance, and that is the measure by which she's known, right? Um, and I thought that was really, really well borne out in the number of encounters that we see her having in, um, in around the tables and the, and the slot machines. <clears throat> because I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he played Gunnery Sergeant Harkman in Full Metal Jacket. Lee
0: Liam- and- Murray, I
1: believe. You. And he was all indignant when she asks, do you want to go on a date? And he, he gets up and walks away. And then when she's brutalized, brutally assaulted by the, those young boys, you know, um, and that's the categorization. You either are the ideal Madonna or not, you know, um, and Sharon Stone, her character of, of Ginger McKenna uh, is never um, a woman of virtue. You know, she's not a Madonna in any way shape or form and i thought the casting was very clever on scorsese's part that's the thing about watching a scorsese picture there's layers and layers and layers and layers to every single decision that we see and clearly one of the reasons why the cast was not only because she was big box office was because of that notorious scene in basic instinct
0: yeah
1: because it immediately when the second we see sharon stone not in the movie when we see her her name on the on the the marquee when we see her name or her face in the poster or the trailer we go She's the sex girl. And so they've prepackaged what Ginger is going to be even before Ace sees
0: her. Hmm. You know? Well, and I think, I think it's also interesting, I guess, a, a through line between the two films is Sarah taking on Ben, despite the fact we know he's in a death spiral, that he's not going to recover from. We think, does she really believe she can save him as the gold-hearted prostitute no, she wants somebody who's in a death spiral. Yeah. And similarly Ace, oh my god, how could he choose this woman who's so independent and like uh, at the yeah. outset I don't love you. I don't have those feelings for you. Nope. That's exactly the kind of woman he wants. Yeah. He yeah. he probably doesn't want to be accountable for it. Yeah. But ultimately he would not go with a woman who would want to be the subservient in a cage is trustworthy. Yeah. He is drawn to the fact that she is unbridled. Yeah. And, oh yes. and, yeah. and, and yet, I wanna I wanna ask you, why do you think Sharon Stone's character Ginger goes from this person who's so savvy, so um, capable of navigating the gauntlet of Las Vegas, the ultimate female hustler in yeah. Vegas, the way she's portrayed? to suddenly like the most desperate, pathetic, um, can't escape this pimp that she fell in love with when she was 14. Um, She veers from this initial almost like movie trailer of how incredibly um, strong she is and savvy to just this desperate, broken down junkie um, who's really at the beck and call of this wonderful performance by james woods yeah being um playing this pimp lester diamond what do you you make about that whole trajectory i think um the the reason why ginger falls apart is because
1: she's given everything she wants Mm. and and she's she's all about material she's all about acquiring as much money and as much bling and the car and the fur and the dress and the diamonds and everything and she's in pursuit of that and so long as she's in pursuit of it she can function Right. All of a sudden, she's a dog chasing a parked car. She smacks straight into it, and she's doesn't know what to do next. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties back into the way Ace it describes what Vegas is. He says like it was like paradise on earth. We were given the keys to heaven. Okay. And they screw it up. You would think that they would be able to manage it, especially as you're saying he's the greatest gambler in the United States. He's able to get odds on the wind and the, the the leather of the football and who was doing coke and all this sort of stuff. He, he had it all down pat, but once you give him the keys to the kingdom, it's ruined. And I think that's the same thing. The mirror is, that's what happened with Ginger. And so I think it's, it's, it's in keeping with the film that the opening credit sequence is played out to the music from um, Johann Sebastian's, uh, The Passion of St. Matthew. Um. And you see, you see Ace falling through down to the flames in Vegas. And it's the fall of man right excess and you you are in sodom and gomorrah
0: and and a little bit of a nod to one of scorsese's favorite films vertigo it's an obvious (laughs) nod to that isn't it i never thought of that now until you said it but
1: absolutely a man falling it has to be it is no in actual fact emmy Saul bass did the did the opening credits designed the opening credits to casino as he did for um for uh, vertigo
0: oh that's funny
1: that's, i didn't know I no that's you're absolutely nailing the head falling 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 but i think also the thing is for another way of reading um casino is it's a very very personal story for for scorsese and it doesn't sound like one but it is because it's the equivalent of the the great movie directors of the 70s Coppola, um spielberg lucas uh, John Milius, Friedkin, all those guys were considered to be movie gods and they all made films of such huge box office success that they were given the keys to the kingdom. They were given almost carte blanche and one by one by one by one, they all blew it. Mm. Coppola worked it very, very successfully until he made one from the heart, a movie set in Las Vegas. Um, uh-huh. And, and William Friedkin goes off to try to remake um, Clouseau's fantastic film, Wages of Fear. He goes wildly over budget shooting, I think in the Dominican Republic in the movie Sorcerer. And um, the, the worst example, uh, Scorsese himself did it with New York, New York. That movie went way, wildly over budget and flopped. Spielberg flopped with 1941. And then the worst offender of all was Michael Cimino when he made Heaven's Gate, going into the entire studio. So this is for me, I think this is a, a reading of the film is where Scorsese is the the, um, the character of Ace is Scorsese in Hollywood, and all his friends are Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas, Brian De Palma, and they're the mafiosi cohort in Vegas, and they blow the whole lot. So oh, that's, that, a, that's a, that was his um, entree into it. But I'll tell you what I love about I love the excess of the film. I yeah. love, it's they're gargoyles, and by by comparison, I love the intimacy, and very, very small nature, very, very quiet nature by comparison to the marauding rock soundtrack you get in Casino. is a very, very smooth, easy jazz soundtrack accompanying a visual scheme in, in Leaving Las Vegas. They shot it all on 16 mil.
0: Mm.
1: It's part of an indie, rough, gra- a grainy type look to the movie in comparison to the beautiful, lush imagery that you get uh, in Casino. And because of that, the performances, although Nicolas Cage is typ- typical Nicolas Cage, he's over the top. But
0: it makes sense that he is over the top. Oh, he fits. I, I, I think all his quirkiness is if he was not as kind of awkwardly beguiling. I'm not sure the right calibration of way to frame the way Nicolas Cage is. But, you know, where he's so noted for his overacting now and just the weirdness of his physical appearance, his hair. Um There is something here where his spontaneity and awkwardness and patheticness at times, um, with something in his face, he's like that, that old dog that the owners just love to death despite, despite the fact that he smells or is, you know, blind or whatever. He has that kind of hangdog look, which is quite something because this is a film where contrary to Hollywood stereotypes, Nicholas Cage is actually a year younger than Elizabeth Shue in this yeah. film. And he, he, he looks like he's in his mid-40s, but I think he's 32 or something. He's young. Yeah. And, you know, typically what we'd see here is, you know, Jack Nicholson at 55. <laughs>
1: with For, tw- yeah,
0: yeah. With a 25-year-old. But he carries a, a pathos of a much older man in this film. Like this... It, It's almost like the same kind of bearing you see with, uh, I think, Philip Baker in Hard Eight. Um, Right, right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, the way that Cage pulls that off is really impressive to me. And and I agree with you too about Casino, that Casino, there's no real plot in the entire three hours at at all. And yet it's, pardon me? It's almost like a
1: documentary the voiceover and the sort of the lack of plot point in act two act three it's it's, it's almost like a documentary It's the an anthropological study yeah. of the city
0: yeah yeah and you know again lest anybody think that it's some some kind of endorsement of these gangsters running las vegas or romantic uh, romanticizing or self-mythologizing what they're running um, as shiny as it is, again, it, it reminds me of, like you were saying, with the opening image of Taxi Driver, that New York looks like hell. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is another version of hell. We have to remember that it took a Hunter S. Thompson who, beginning with the Hells Angels, where he looked at the Hells Angels, really the first one to document them as a social phenomena, uh, that they were not an aberration from American society. They were a byproduct of American society, if you exclude a group, they're going to develop this outlaw mentality because it's active, as yes. opposed to passively being losers. Yeah, and I don't know that it has any relation to what we're seeing in the current political climate. But, but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> lovely segue. <laughs> I think I think it's very important when we look at, at Las Vegas as Thompson after Hell's Angels. Uh, signed a book contract called The Death of the American Dream. And it took him almost 10 years to find that destination. He was looking for the site of the crime. And he wanted a book to be essentially an autopsy on the death of the American Dream. And then he stumbled on Las Vegas and went, oh, it's here. Yeah, it's not Hollywood. It's not New York. It's not middle America. Las Vegas perfectly epitomizes essentially an open wound (laughs) that that is gaping. And that America is so distorted from what it was in its founding that it's not only accustomed to this wound, but it sees it as something celebratory for the whole family to come and enjoy. And, And so when I look at the way that Scorsese, at first it's a little subtle at the beginning, but... A lot of the backdrop of Ace being confronted with kind of a tornado in his in his life. Mm. I mean, everybody knows by being involved in this how it's going to end. Yeah, they're going to be blown up or assassinated. They can't trust anybody. Everybody they let into their lives, they're living in hell. The moment they, as you say, the moment they hit the jackpot and they have control of a casino or control of Vegas, their days are numbered. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and and yet all the while you have this kind of neon purgatory behind them. <laughs> yeah, nice to say. Right? Was- I mean, I mean, everywhere is just shiny, fun, exciting. And as Scorsese says at the beginning of the film, at night you can't see the desert that's just filled with holes.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And all of our problems in those holes. Yeah. Yeah, if I can just add,
1: Brind, I'm just going to be a little bit indulgent here, just to try to add to your neon purgatory is great. The road to hell is not paved with good intentions. The road to hell is lit <laughs> by neon <laughs> in Vegas. The road to hell is the strip, you know. Yeah. I, look, I have got to, got to admit here, I've never been to Vegas, so I don't know what the experience is. I've never been to Atlantic City. <coughs> um, maybe it's because of a very, very fearful nature I'm aware that I may succumb to all the temptations, but so I can't speak directly of it. So my, my estimation of Vegas is completely and exclusively through cinema. Mm. Right? Um, but it's interesting that um, you know, we were talking about the way, that the funny thing is, if, if Ace is so damn good at gambling, the amazing thing is the, when he sees Ginger for the first time, she's breaking every law of the casino. Yep. She's stealing and then she throws up all the the chips into the air now if, if anyone's really really familiar with Scorsese's work There's this particular shot that he does and this immediately comes after the sequence where um, Ace is explaining about who's watching who's watching who and the pit the pit managers and the, the pit bosses and the dealers and right. watching everything. and after having established that everyone's being watched then he finally sees uh, ginger. And then when she throws all the chips up in the air, Scorsese goes for an overhead shot and the camera is looking down at the table. So the chips come right up into the, our, our view and it's a done in slow motion. And Scorsese had done that shot already before in his career uh, in 1988, when he did the last temptation of Christ, when, ah. when Jesus is in the temple amongst all the, the money changers, and he overturns their places of business and he throws the coins up into the air and Scorsese gave us the same shot. So I think that's a very, very deliberate echo, because he's really saying, Well, you know, this is Sodom and Gomorrah, this is Helen, this is heaven on earth, but it's been completely corrupted. You know, this is this is the fall of great this is the fall of what what's the, what's the character in the Bible? Well Lucifer being being cast out of heaven. Right. And sinners. And that reminds me then of the reason why Vegas came into being at all was because of Bugsy Siegel, who is a gangster. And he was driving through the desert and he literally had to, he was taken short, he had to go pee, Stop the car, steps out. This is according to the the Warren Beatty movie from 1991. And he goes out and he steps into the desert and he has a vision just like Moses did with the burning bush. While drugs is peeing in the desert, he has a vision. And he said, we needed this. We Create this place as a stopover for GI for GIs on their way home. And that's where the idea apparently of, of Vegas began. Interestingly, it was conceived of, as you said, it was conceived of by a gangster. And as you said, the the establishment in America allows the criminals to do X, Y, and Z. And once they figure out the formula, they shut them down and they legalize it for themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, just like the lottery was yeah. bam. Um yeah. Yeah. Prohibition. What did it do? Did it stop drinking? No, it created Al Capone. Yeah. You know, it's just down the line. Same with drugs. I mean, I'm in a state now where medicinal marijuana, all you have to do is go to the next state and you just think, what, why would they not want the tax revenue from this where all of these states are doing it? And eventually, I mean, every drug is going to be legalized once there's more money in selling it than supporting a failed policy with the drug war that has accomplished nothing except make drugs cheaper, more accessible.
1: <laughs> and increased and, and, and created what we now call the, um, the prison, the industrial
0: prison complex. That too. Yeah, you're right. Right, right. For-profit jails and, and all of that. Um, no, I mean, I find both of the, and, and I, well, first I want to add to, some of the biblical stuff with Scorsese, where I think you're absolutely dead on about his obsession with all finding that wherever he goes in his stories. But you also see a bit of a a taste of that with Ben when he's selling all of his possessions. Yeah. It's it's very much, you know, Christ Christ's manifesto to everybody. You want to get into heaven, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, Ben is not doing that. I mean, but there's an element of... I don't know, a kind of catharsis of kind of crossing the River Styx into yeah. some place from from his former self that we don't get much information about. There's, you know, a few photographs and all of that, but it's very visceral to see him collect every belonging he has and either burn it or put it in a garbage bag, uh, sells his car, sells his watch, his clothes, has his clothes yeah. um, to... The other extreme, where Scorsese had a multi or at least a million dollar budget on clothes. For where, alone. <laughs> For <laughs> <to be> alone, <laughs> of, of, of the most <laughs> unbelievable suits I've ever seen in my life, that as this sort of slow burning film, as much as it's fast paced, yeah. the descent of Ace into just complete abject chaos is most clearly uh, represented in just his clothing. His, his attire gets crazier and crazier through the film.
1: It's that incredible little anecdote where he's being interviewed, he's behind the desk and he gets up and he's not wearing trousers. He walks over to the press to sit down to put a crease in it. I mean, that clearly, that came from uh, De Niro doing research. But mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, I can't imagine a writer or Nicholas Pelleggi, or anybody conjuring that piece of imagination of themselves, you know? Right. And I think that's the reason why the both movies work so well. Tragically, in, in, in John O'Brien's case, it's born literally from, I wouldn't say it's, it's a clear de coeur. I couldn't say that it's written from the heart. It's written from the bottom of a bottle. Yeah. And what I do find intriguing about it, though, is that um, neither films are set out to explain the origins of the character's pain. Hmm. He opens up as he, and this is another thing that I really want to uh, touch on. He opened up in Vegas, and he's already down the aisle. He's in the supermarket, full, filling up the um, the super tro- the trolley. And I remember a critic saying, "Alcoholics don't drink like this. This film is not grounded in reality." And I said, "If you just wait a few minutes later, because you see him in the bank." And um, where he he has the DTS and he, he can't sign the check. So he's got to go across town and have something to drink before he can come back.
0: Uh-huh.
1: He he's, he's calmed down and then he starts to do this drift into the soliloquy where he's talking about what he would like to do with the bank teller. I'd like to pour the, the drink across your body and, you know, open your legs and all this sort of stuff. And there are people behind him looking at him in wonder and then they go for a reverse shot, and he's not speaking at all. It's all in his head. So I thought that the point, of what I'm trying to say, Bryn, is that when we see him in the supermarket, he, yeah, he is drinking. He is, he's buying the alcohol, but he's not buying it to that excess. That's what he feels like he's 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 buying that that amount. It's the film is not a. It's, the film is poetic, and it's romantic. It's a little bit sentimental, but it's not it's not realistic, in the way it's filmed. It's realistic though in its depiction, his state of mind. That's. Yeah. What, I'm, I'm making a mess of trying to explain, it, but there is a delineation between the way they visualize it and the way he he
0: feels it um, in real life. They, they visualize the emotion. Yeah, Probably. that's right. That's I mean, right. Yeah. And similarly, you know, what he's seeking, he seeks out a prostitute, and the first night he hires her, he doesn't fuck her. No. Right? No. He's he's incapable of fucking her, and the only time they actually consummate dare I say, their love affair. I mean, they both express love to one another, albeit not hearing it. It's a little little indirect. Um, the consummation seems to almost kill him in a Christ-like pose. It's, not, it's a little ambiguous whether he died after the coitus mortis or whatever it would be. <laughs> <laughs> um, not, not the worst way to go, but nonetheless, it's quite a depressing, you know, cavernous scene well, yeah, but here, here's the thing that I find
1: really, really good is that, it, yeah, we're joking and we're being serious at the same time, not a bad way to go, but it's a terrible way for Elizabeth, for Sarah to see Ben go like that, because this is the way that she she's groping, uh, I mean, emotionally fumbling towards, um, trying to find some sort of union or solace or even salvation. I'm not talking about religious, uh, but even just an emotional rescue. Um, and the guy that she, is with he dies in her with her and how on earth can she come back from that that's what i find really interesting about about the way the 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 end claim of the film and the reason why i mentioned it's a little bit sentimental is because they they go for that maudlin freeze frame at the end after he's died they cut back to nicholas to to ben uh, lit beneath the neon yeah. smile and laugh I think that was done in post-production. I really doubt for a second that, that they decided, that they planned that in advance, that the, that was the shot they're going to end on. I thought that they put that in to make us feel, it's
0: okay. Yeah. No, I, I had forgotten that they, they concluded that way. It's an awful, awful moment. I mean. It's clawing.
1: It, it really undermines, uh, I wouldn't call the film savage, but the severity of it, you know, um, it, it really undermines it. it it's a pity. It's a pity. And just, you know, I think just while we're we're praising the film so much, not not wanting to indulgently pick at it, pick at both. But I think if if one of the flaws in Leaving Las Vegas is the difficulty with the character, because there don't he doesn't go anywhere. Right. Right. The second he hits Las Vegas, that's the end of the story effect. Mm-hmm. and it's just as we said character study and because of that there's a there's a feeling occasionally of it being a little bit repetitive and the reason why i say that is because i think there's an overuse of the ray charles song i'm gonna love you like no one's loved you come rain or come shine we hear that a little bit too often in the story uh, Do you well know what I
0: mean? yeah i i think i think when i was in my mid-20s uh, i was in havana and hotel california came on and that's used a fair bit by outsiders trying to describe what it's like for certain Cubans who wanted to leave is that my whole island is Hotel California. We can't leave. At any time you like, but you're going to Yeah. Yeah. And when I heard some people making that reference, I immediately thought the closer anywhere is to having Don Henley's lyrics achieve relevance, the closer you are to some layer of hell. I'm not sure which it is. <laughs> But similarly, I was, I'll confess to you, I, tr- I try to earnestly watch the whole film and, and give undivided attention, but the moment that Don Henley is coming on, I'm fast-forwarding it, and then you know, just scrupulously trying to avoid listening to him yeah. serenade anything. Yeah. Because I, I so get taken out of the I just so loathe yeah. the sound of that man's voice trying to achieve uh, whatever it is he's seeking to achieve to complement this film yeah yeah i think
1: yeah i think it's a pity then because figures did a really really good soundtrack he composed a really really good soundtrack and you know another flaw i think was the decision to cast julian sands an english actor as a russian stroke latvian mobster Didn't
0: didn't work at all
1: it for me i mean i know i know you're a fan of Kenneth Kenneth branagh but i think um very very strong as he is in many many different films he was completely misplaced not miscast misplaced in tenet i don't know whether you had were able to see that
0: i haven't seen it yet but i want was it any good i
1: I don't want to spoil it for you (laughs) (laughs) okay like
0: dunkirk so there's some goodwill
1: Yeah, but he he plays a Russian oligarch and I think misplacement because there's no, you're looking at Kenneth Brown and saying, sorry, you just simply do not have the absolute metallic visceral uh, fangs that would rip someone's heart out in in an instant. If you're going to cast a Russian oligarch, firstly, get a Russian actor who has hung around with these guys and seen them operate for 15 years and suffered at their hands. Or even better, get a real one. Sure, sure. But put, casting Julian Sands was, I thought, it was it was uh, undermined. That um, it was interesting because I think in the in the nineties that's when um, Russian mafia be, really began to emerge
0: mm. both
1: in America and Europe. I, mean, I know they started to flood London in the early to mid nineties. You know, and I think that that casting. Um, I'm sorry, that character of Yuri was was good because the cliche would have been had it been an Italian American and a, a mafiosi. So right. that gave it a little bit of a thing. But there's other there's other uh, casting decisions which I thought were really interesting in very very small roles. I mean, I remember the first time I saw the movie, watching it, and uh, Valer- Valeria Galino, she plays a lawyer I think in a very a very very early scene who Nicholas Cage hits on. Yeah. And- she was in Rain Man.
0: Yeah, she's great in that.
1: And I thought, oh, wow, okay. And then suddenly it's not about her, right? And, you know, a very, very small role. Um, there's a lady called C- uh, Carrie Lowell. She played the bank teller we were just talking about. She'd been, yeah. She appeared in the James Bond picture.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. And so if you look further down the list, there's also Laurie Metcalfe, who plays the lady who runs the, the group of apartments where Sarah playing. So I've always a,
0: really liked her as an actress a lot. Everything she's done. Yeah, she's great.
1: Just in, she just has an amazing presence. Um, and w- no matter what character she's playing, she makes them interesting. Yeah. Always, always interesting. She just has this magic formula. And so there are things, they got the casting, really, really interesting casting in some of the roles. And I think it's a pity that, I don't know for what reason, they gave Julian Sands' his part that wasn't right for him. Um, but I'll tell you one of my favorite scenes, though, in the movie Rain, is where they're at the, at the when they go out to the motel
0: mm.
1: and they're by the swimming pool. And inevitably, Nicolas Cage then has a little bit too much to drink, falls over and smashes the, the table. And then the owner of the, the motel comes out and very, very politely, very, very sm- full of smiles. I'll take I'll clear this up. No problem. You guys just take your drinking back to the hotel motel room and don't ever come back here again. And she says with a smile, I thought that was, again, you know, did that happen to John O'Brien in real life? Likely, Um, but again, just coming back to another thing that I love about the movie is he doesn't explain why, what happened to his career, was he he a writer, was he an agent, what happened with his agency, what happened with his his career, it just does. That's the way, there's no backstory, the only backstory you get, really is the photograph of when he burns and you see a woman and a child you say oh that's a marriage that happened but other than that nothing counts
0: yeah no also interesting to see julian lennon as yeah. a bartender was just a funny choice danny, uh, houston. danny houston was in this but he plays danny a one. that's right with lee emery he's the bartender yeah. yeah you're quite right yeah i noticed that and i was just like is that is that danny houston because i you know not, not long ago, I watched uh, uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and, and there you have one Dad, so right?
1: another, All yeah. <laughs> the generations.
0: Yeah. Um, and similarly, with the casting on the side of Casino, yeah. I think it's, especially having just watched the, the Netflix series about Fran Lebowitz that Martin Scorsese directed, Hello. is, is Scorsese one of the best audiences for a comedian I've ever seen? he is falling apart laughing nonstop with liebowitz and for you know a different a, a more modern generation looking at casino you would not appreciate how it's loaded with comedy talent yeah. with with supreme comedians in playing dramatic roles you have one of the smothers brothers is there don rickles is there Follow. Uh, yeah uh, you know a pile of comedians and also from kind of the golden age of Las Vegas, you know, Sinatra's Rat Pack era yeah. Vegas. And it just enriches it so much. Yeah, Kevin Pollack is in there in a, in a very narrow kind yeah. of role. Um, but I thought, like, it, there's something about Scorsese. At, you mentioned De Niro with his pants off before a meeting. Uh, I don't think he... I appreciated what a sense of humor he has. That This is like a very quirky nerd, film yeah. nerd of a person, and to have that person look at organized crime yeah. or, you know, the darkness of the boxing world with Raging Bull or Taxi Driver, you know, this was an asthmatic, bedridden kid. Yeah. So so as you're saying about what is Las Vegas, you have to look at it through the lens of, of film to yeah. have your points of reference. It's very interesting to see Scorsese delve into it. I know he had his issues with cocaine. Where for for a period of time but uh it is it it, there's a lot of mixed elements that are mixed in such a way like it's like a it's like a drink that arrives at your table and you're just not sure if it's going to be great or awful and 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 there's there's something about casino that has that resonance for me like it's such an over-the-top drink with nine thousand garnishes in it you you kind of like i don't know if i'm in the mood for sweet or savory or how to attack this thing yeah and uh the speed with which um we're going from scene to scene to scene you pointed out earlier with uh raging bull that almost every single moment in that film is emblematic of the theme yeah and that's really really hard to do and it certainly <laughs> doesn't happen by accident yeah uh, it's,
1: yeah, it's, it's it's like um, a weightlifter on some unbelievably enhancing steroid. Yeah. How Scorsese is able to cram in so much,
0: so much. Forget about each scene. I mean, I said each shot. You know, and, and and yet it's so funny. I mean, that's what I was left with. It's not like Sopranos funny. Sopranos has its own sensibility about why it's so funny and also what makes it so scary when it's violent. But I found watching Casino this time, the first time I saw it, I just, I was quite put off by the violence. It was just so brutal. Um, You know, especially Joe Pesci, this little dwarf kind of stabbing somebody with a pen or, um, you know, he gets executed in this film by the person that he executed in Goodfellas. I set up a meeting with the guys way out in the sticks. I didn't want my brother to get fucked around. I mean, what's right is right. They don't give a fuck about- Ah! which is a fun (laughs) role reversal um but i found myself watching casino and just reveling at the filmmaking more than the story okay yeah and totally enjoying that but but really not buying into any of the characters just 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 being separate from it a little bit, like a little bit detached from the story and just marveling at the filmmaking. Yeah. Where, whereas it's the other extreme, as you say, with leaving Las Vegas, that it's so intimate, you know, where we're in the terminal stages of alcoholism. You have his hooker. The moment I hear in any movie where somebody has to explain why they're named that we have a problem you know what I mean? Like, oh, what an interesting name. If it's interesting, we should not talk about how it's interesting. Oh, yeah. Just as if I'm a comedian, I don't want to hear why my joke is funny and you're clapping <laughs> at it if you're not laughing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah with an E. So like every review of the movie points out, like, "Case Sarah Sarah" from Fiddler on the Roof. And it's just, oh, fuck. Like, come on. Um, yeah. But in the moments where it really works... Uh, You know, this prolonged, protracted bender of Ben, um, just his face does manage to get me. Like, I felt this agony of anybody I know that struggled with substances of, are they going to get away? I don't know. And then some of the ones who ultimately you thought might but don't. um, Ben seems to be a pretty good emblem for that in a way to, on the one hand, arouse your compassion. Mm. But on the other, that compassion—the more you invest in it—is going to hurt. Like you're you're signing on for a lot of pain.
1: Yeah, I think that's what part of the key. It's so intriguing about the movie and why it did so well in '95. Sorry, in the year '94 uh, when it came out, is because Ben doesn't feel sorry for himself. There's no. no good point. And neither neither does Sarah either. And but you do feel enormously for both. You know. Um, the introduction of Sarah where she's playing the tricks with that other woman in the hotel, you know, it's the equivalent of, uh, Ben in, in the department, in, in the supermarket. Right. It's, and, but the, the difficult the, the, the huge delineation between the two characters is we don't see Sarah's fantasy life. We don't get that, that, um, fracture that we get in Ben when we see Ben in the, in the queue in the bank fantasizing about this monologue and what he wants to say to the bank teller we don't get sarah doing that at all so we don't see her fantasy but we can actually see it on her face and her performance when she really really cares and you know the first time you see her when she spends the hour with them she says he said well my hour is up with you so oh, we can still talk you know he, me in my very, very naive experience of life, even at the age of 24, I said, that's not real. <laughs> Sorry. She would charge him for every single word. But, <laughs> right. But that was, right. that's, that's the, um, the tenderness and the pity of this relationship is simply no way it, it could work. And you wonder, wonder, you say to yourself, why did the two of them latch onto each other? They're almost like two eagles caught in midair. Do you know what I mean? That they, when the Eagles clatched talons. Yeah. Almost falling out of control. What was it really about? Well, I can understand Ben because it, it, Sarah could have been anybody. Right? Yeah. Whichever cold girl walked in front of his car in Vegas, that was the one he was going to go for. Right? But what right. what was it with Ben that Sarah just, Sarah just goes, Okay, I'll. I feel empathy for this guy. I want to care for him. I want to try to save him. The amount of guys she she would be with. Maybe there's somebody else with that. I I,
0: I do think that there's one there's one moment where we do see Sarah's fantasy, and I I didn't think about it until you pointed out. Just one. Yeah. Which is when she cooks for him, and uh, she sits at the table, and you see her looking. I you know I think you're ready for rice. Yeah. And, They've tried to go for dinner at Ben's calling, you know, yeah. where he invites her for dinner and doesn't eat anything. They have spaghetti or something. Um, but they make a point of showing when the spaghetti is served, she takes a big forkful of spaghetti and then there's a cut. Right. And the same thing happens with the rice. Is She's eating and she's prepared this for him and it's domesticity and, and yeah. it's extending – love directly i guess indirectly because it's food and not she said the words at the casino which she couldn't hear which says a lot about who she is yeah i'll say it as long as you don't hear it and (laughs) and i'll cook for you as long as you don't eat it (laughs) right don't use your mouth don't open your mouth (laughs) but uh no it's it's quite interesting because you have this perfect yin yang of incompatibility which is the compatibility because they want to live in a fantasy and similarly ace ace and ginger as a love story is kind of similar Mm. i want i want the prostitute who can never stop being a hustler because she's so independent but really what she is is the exact opposite she's a complete slave to a pimp
1: yeah
0: of, of her own volition you know, and and similar for her, um, she's trying to break free from this past but will never escape it and, and her addictions and all of that. Um, and I wonder, you know, just as a backdrop, it's fascinating to me the way that they look at Las Vegas. I don't know that Ben looks at Vegas as a fun place, but it's kind of presented that way when he's, you know, he goes out gambling or the food is there. He's, uh, you know sort of ensorcelled by the idea of a rib dinner and he's talking to Sarah about it, but you know, he's not eating anything. So what like probably food is the last thing he wants. Yeah. Um, but it also, I like how both films offer this kind of nocturnal apparition of Vegas, nice. but the engagement with it, uh, you know, One thing I would say that might surprise you if you went to Vegas, I've only been there a couple of times to cover uh, boxing matches, and I think to interview Mike Tyson was the first time I went, is it was so depressing, like that it's just this gigantic shopping mall for mainly, like, hugely overweight people and homeless people everywhere. I mean... Las Vegas was one of the fastest-growing cities in the world not long ago and then was the hardest hit by the recession in the world yeah. simultaneously. I mean, um, the what was that, that film about the economic collapse that was made? Brad Pitt was in it, Ryan Gosling.
1: The Big Short.
0: Big Short. Um, it's not an accident that what tipped them off about the collapse was coming was that prostitutes in Las Vegas were buying up, Multiple condos. (laughs) Um, so I like that there is the kind of glitz of what Vegas is in the background, but when they interact with it, it doesn't look very appealing. No. Which which reminded me a little bit of that wonderful episode of Twilight Zone, where the gangster who's died, I think it's called a nice place to visit. The gangster who dies. Spends almost the entire episode being chaperoned around what he imagines is heaven, and a lot of it has to do with kind of the confines of Las Vegas a wonderful hotel room, gambling, and available beautiful women, and all the money he wants, only to discover at the end he's not in heaven, he's in hell, right? Right, and this, and, and again, as casino feels like, um, he it his his hell. in in relation to the life that he's lived to get him there is that he's in the he has succeeded at everything he's ever dreamed and can never lose
1: yes yeah Um, yeah and the the funny thing is is as explains in the voiceover the house wants to keep playing because the longer you you longer play the house wins yeah and so the longer ace stays there well actually he's going to lose because he's not the house. He's just working for the house. So eventually his luck of Ace Rothstein is going to run out and it begins to run out, as we said, when, when, he, see, when he claps eyes on, on Ginger. Just going back to the way that the films are, they, they present Vegas. Um, I love the way in uh, in um, Leaving Las Vegas, they, as I said, they shot a 16 mil, so it's grainy, but a lot of the scenes, the night scenes, they shoot on a really, 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 really long lens. So you see, for example, Ben and Sarah against the backdrop of the lights and the lights are completely blown out. Mm. You know, they, 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 what would be and should be a very, very small speck on the screen is just a big blur of color. And it's, 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 it's expressionistic. It means, visually it means that they're not really there, that they are almost in their own hermetically sealed little emotional bubble. Um, they are separate from their environment, although they're stuck there. Right. So that was one way that I thought that Mike Figgison call it here, the Irish American director of photography, Declan Quinn. Yeah. Um, lit it It was really, really great, great choices there. But then if we look at, as I said to the Baroque presentation, the almost mannerist high altar stuff that, um, Scorsese does with Robert Richardson, he began his most famously, he began his career with, uh, with Oliver Stone. Mm. Very very dynamic visual. Stone loved to move the cameras. He so got Platoon and Wall Street, and then he comes to work with Scorsese, and then he's now recently he's been working with Tarantino very very effectively. Oh. But while he's working with with Oliver Stone, he developed this these really really hot spots, quite burning light, which you would see. Um, you saw it in the doors. You saw, it in, um, you saw it also in Heaven and Earth. But when he goes to shoot Casino, it's almost like the points of heaven are piercing the hell here to try to illuminate the space so that everyone could see the sin to get the hell out. You know, <laughs> Especially that scene, that brilliant scene where it's about when they're in, the, in that very, very quiet, huge bar. And one guy turns to Ace Ross, is this your pen? It's a nice pen. And Joe Pesci stabs him to death with the pen. And if you look at it, the lighting there, the white, it's a white light burning into these, these pits of darkness. And it's almost like a purgatorial. um sorry, I'm getting everything mixed up. I really don't know my religious references enough. It's it's heaven trying to pull these people out, but there's no way that these characters can be redeemed. None at all. I think it's interesting. I mean, you're joking there for Joe Pesci's murder at the end is that he gets the beating that he inflicted at the beginning of Goodfellas, but also. You know, and this is a problem that some critics had. They said, Oh, this movie is too much like Goodfellas. It's Goodfellas part two. Mm. And I think that's like saying, well, the searchers is by darling Clementine part two, <laughs> you know, what I mean? it's of course they're both Westerns of course, they're both gang- gangster pictures, but they, they talk about something else completely. You know, Goodfellas is not necessarily exclusively about material excess, right? It's, it's, it's about aspiration. This guy wants to be a gangster in last, in for in casino, it's it's about materialism and as you pointed out, it's the it's the corporatization, it's the legalization of um, criminality in America. It's where the IRS stepped in and said, We will own this city. And how do they do they how does he say it at the end when they when they blow up the one of the hotels, it was funded and was it was funded by the Teamsters Union. Right. They, their pensions and just go, well, that's what the movie is really about. It's not just a gangster picture, you know, so they're and the and the way that Wolf of Wall Street is about something else entirely again, because now he's, he's left the criminal world and this is completely Wall Street.
0: Right.
1: Which is completely institutionalized. So I think it, it's a really, really interesting pairing and it is such a remarkable coincidence that both films came out literally within weeks of each other.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, and two very, very different, and in terms of the epic scale and the intimate, I mean, you know, if you're to put it on a canvas, Casino is a, is, is a huge canvas. And um, Leaving Las Vegas is two, a, a mini miniature portrait, just yeah.
0: two characters, you know? Um, I, I like that. I think with both films, kind of in in a way that you can put them on the same wall, as it were, if you were hanging them, yeah. is that intersection of some of the themes of religion and materialism, capitalism, uh-huh. where they collide. And, yeah. and the effects of it are, are interesting to think about, for sure.
1: Sorry, it just reminded me, there's one or two shots that you actually see nuns in the background in Leaving Las Vegas. Huh. And they're there they're, um, um, collecting for charity. And so that's a really, really good, a very, very quick card that Mike Vegas just drops into the scenery there.
0: And I guess, and I guess two others, now that I think about it, it refers to a waitress as a nurse. It's a funny scene and also keeps referring to not keeps referring but a a couple of times maybe more refers to Sarah as his angel yeah yeah uh so yeah this kind of redemptive angel of salvation that's being offered to him when he he wants to drift off into his own private hell yeah
1: it is it's an iniquity that they're in but the good thing about figus's direction there is he he plays it lightly he doesn't overplay that hand.
0: just like the music just yeah. like the music it's all, it's all a lounge act <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes you know yes. it's it, it's a clever it's a really clever tool i never realized it sort of when i dabble a bit in documentaries and that kind of thing myself if it's heavy material i always think you need the gravity of music to underline it and it took me watching a lot of Louis Theroux's work to understand the genius with which he creates light music for heavy themes really puts an audience a bit on their heels about how they're supposed to think about it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Very clever. Yeah. And that's where we're back to what we were saying about Scorsese. He, he doesn't give us the regular signpost for us to say, oh, morality lesson. Oh, this right. He just he cuts us loose because he, his 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 dictionary and his vocabulary sorry his dictionary is grammar are completely divorced from so many other American movies that right. we don't, we're, we're not what I call, given the um, the um, the Sesame Street school of storytelling. Right. You, at the end of the show, this today was brought to you with a number four in the letter S. Scorsese doesn't do that, which is demoralizing you get in so many other
0: films. Right. You know? um, well, and, and, and I just want to say with Scorsese, the other big point is it's very important that you don't lose sight of when we're looking at, at you know he uses the microscope yeah. to look at his characters periodically but he's using a telescope to look at us with the themes yeah and, and there's there one in each eye of what he's doing and I think the the critics often or people that are a little reactive to it think these characters are like why is he delving into these characters? But the characters are very often just mirrors at society as you say we we have gone against looking at prostitution, drug use, alcoholism, gambling as vices. Now we celebrate people in many respects. Now porn stars are celebrities who have what book they, deals. Well, they blow the president of the United States. Right. Right, right, right. No, president is a prime example of somebody that emerged from all of these worlds, porn, wrestling, boxing. Um, this is where he made his name. This is how he got our attention Then a sleazy game show, yeah, uh, right. you know, reality show. So there, there's an element of that where, you know, good fellas reflecting working class blue collar guys, where you have the female, the wife saying, you know, our guys were simple guys. None of them were doctors or lawyers. And they had the guts to go out there and steal to yeah. provide for us. Yeah. And similarly, you know, with Las Vegas, that it is a middle-class aspirational vacation, the ultimate middle-class aspirational yeah. vacation. Where can you have more fun in the world than going to Las Vegas? But look at how, on the other side, how they look at you. Look at, like, from, the, from what you get from the narration of De Niro's character, that you are the ultimate sucker who's throwing, not just throwing away your money, throwing away your kids' tuition, throwing away your house payments – but happy, but but joyful when you get on the plane to go home thinking, <laughs> when can I go back?
1: Go back again. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it is. And I think that's, that's one of the tricks that Scorsese pulls very, very successfully and repeatedly throughout his films, is that he, he allures you, he lures you in with fantastic soundtrack and, and the dynamic grammar of cinema with his beautiful cutting and the cinematography and the way it looks is always a beautiful sheen. But in the cliche, just if you look, if you lift that veil, you know, you're discovering the wizard of Oz. There's something really, really is unsettling. And that's the thing I think with leaving Las Vegas is it presents the, the really, really depressing, uh, uh, reality of it. And you would think that there'd be nothing behind the image then, but Vegas does succeed in giving us a depth to that unpleasantness. It's very, very easy for a director to um, be sullen and to, to present the bitter reality of something to, to the point that we're repelled, because there's no depth to it, none. Right. Right. But Figgis somehow through—I don't know—I've I, been intrigued as to how he found the story, how he found came across the book, and what, it, what attracted him to the story. But clearly, he found something beyond just the surface the unpleasant surface of it, you know, um, pathos. Absolutely. Empathy. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's, it's a, it's a tribute to the director to find, um, as I said, he drifts into sentimentality once in a while, but to find um, moments of surprising originality, because how many scenes, how many times have we seen movies about prostitution? And as you said, the cliche of the whore with the heart of gold, you know, um, they do give it depth. They give they give it plausibility because maybe the the idea of the whore with the heart of gold isn't a male construct. Mm. You know, quite clearly there are enough people working in the sex industry. I think that's even a terrible phrase, um, but the truth is that's what it's called. You know, who who have the little dogs and the pets and they, go, they care for un- unwanted or uh, animals that have been abused or something. So they do clearly, it's not just about grafting or grifting for money. Um, there, it, there's a sense of a way out or trying to maintain uh, a sense of caring, which is what Ginger doesn't have. And that's her downfall. And strangely, the fact that Sarah has that ability is part of her flaw, meaning mm-hmm. her. Weakness. it's not a flaw, but it's a weakness is that she gave her love to ben knowing it was never going to come back
0: right i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna close with a little quote uh from the book that i underlined some time ago but i think it i think it actually fits about both of these films it's it's from sarah's character in the book Mm -hmm. and o'brien says of sarah to sarah chips are the perfect symbol symbolizing other symbols it is this extra generation The picture of a picture that lets one become totally abstract about wealth in any degree, rendering it without meaning at first cursory glance, and inevitably upon closer examination with its most profound meaning, tying itself not to nothing, but to everything at once.
1: That guy could write. Brilliant. He could write. You know, it's it's a dreadful pity but it's very insightful. And as you said, it, it actually twins the films together. It's almost as if yeah. he was writing a review, somebody was writing a review of both movies. Yeah,
0: it, yeah. it really. And I will say to people uh, in encouraging them to look up the book, that is not the only memorable passage in it. It is full of them. He is an extraordinary writer and uh, it's a real tragic thing. I know his sister has helped sort of push two other books um, and I, I've read them, but but they, it's quite a special book. His dad considered the book uh, his suicide note. His dad was with him for the last couple of months of him trying to get treatment and that kind of stuff. Didn't obviously work out, but uh, yeah, I mean, i it's a dark one. It's a dark one, but it's a darkly beautiful book. Uh, so th- thanks so much, Stephen, for your time with you. our Las Vegas double bill. <laughs> All right, good seeing you. Take care. Thanks for listening to No Happy Endings. Our show is produced and edited by George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. the last.